Hey, I want to welcome you to the Marty McLean podcast. This is episode 14. Today I want to talk about how God is at work in the United States of America. I believe God is at work in our nation today, and I believe He's been at work in our nation throughout its founding. I know a lot of people nowadays, they don't like America as much as they used to, or a lot of people find a lot of faults with America. But I believe we have a nation that has been set apart by God. That's right, I believe God has a purpose of plan for the United States of America. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that. And I know that America hasn't always been perfect. I mean, we've had a civil war over slavery. I mean, that tells you there's some things that, you know, we're not always the way it ought to be. So we know that, but I do believe that God had a founding purpose for the United States of America. And when I go even back in the history of our nation, even before the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, even before that time, earlier in the 1700s, you see how God used a stirring among the people. We refer to it as the first great awakening, that something started happening in the religious life of the nation. Now, during that time, on the secular world, in the secular world, it was the time of the Enlightenment, the, 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 age, the age of reason. Now, the age of reason was, you know, man became the measure of all things. Uh, really didn't need as much of the revelation from Scripture. Man could kind of figure it out himself. You didn't need, uh, you didn't need faith. You had science. Um, you didn't have to believe in miracles or, you know, or the supernatural. Uh, you had reason. And, and so you had this age of reason that was happening in, in the secular world, but also in the life of the nation, in the life of the people in the, in the American colonies. Something else was starting to happen. In the 17, 1730s, the 1750s, you know, you kind of have a debate as to how long the Great Awakening lasted. Some would even say it lasted from the 1730s to the 1770s. But however you want to gauge the, the decades there, there was a definite change in the fabric of the people who made up the colonies, the American colonies. These people were changed, not everyone, but the general population, the population as a, as a whole, there was a religious conversion that was taking place, and it was to Christianity. It was... All of a sudden, there was a newness there. there. There was a movement of the Spirit of God in and amongst the people that had not been happening, and things started to change. You had some of the main players during this time. You can talk about Gilbert Tenney. You can talk about Theodore Frelinghausen. But the three main guys that you want to talk about when you do mention the First Great Awakening is the theologian of the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. That would be Jonathan Edwards. Of course, Jonathan Edwards was, his, was the Anglican minister there in Northampton. Uh, many people, when they think about John, Jonathan Edwards, they automatically think, okay, that's the guy that preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so they always think, okay, Jonathan Edwards, man, that guy's hardcore. That guy, you know, if you look at some of the imagery that he does use when he preached that sermon, Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, it's quotes like this. Quote, this is what Jonathan Edwards said when he preached that sermon. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he is now doing or what he intends to do. 
other parts of the, the sermon that he wrote out. And some would say that Jonathan Edwards read his sermons, but that's kind of debatable. But here's what he also said in that Sinners in the Hands of an Angry, angry Guy, quote, talking about man, as he that walks in slippery places is liable to fall. He can't foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning, unquote. Here's another quote from it. Quote, there is laid in the very nature of carnal men a foundation for the torments of hell. And it is said when Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, that's, this is one of the keystone sermons of that whole time period of the Great Awakening. The people thought, you know, they were grabbing hold to the pews. It was like, oh no, I've got, I've got to be converted because they knew that obviously there's a God, I'm answerable to Him. I can't be good enough to save myself. I've got to have some help. And then they realized how good the gospel of Jesus Christ really was that you know, Christ would die on the cross on their behalf for their sins. And, and there was this conversion that happened in all these people. And it wasn't just with the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. Of course, you had Tenney and you had Frelinghausen. But also you had this guy named George Whitfield. George Whitfield had come over from England. Uh, it is, he is considered America's first celebrity. One writer says of the approximately 900,000 people that lived in the colonies, the, the colonists of the 900,000 at that time, about 80% had heard George Whitfield preach. The man was a preaching machine, and he could preach, and he could project his voice. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of his biggest fans was Ben Franklin. Uh, it is said that there was a time where uh, you get that the numbers are kind of go between 23,000 and 30,000, that he preached open air to about 30,000 people. George Whitfield did. And the way he spoke, the way he could pronounce his words, uh, just Google George Whitfield and Mesopotamia. Because it is said when, when he would say Mesopotamia, people would tremble. Some would even cry just by him pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. Well, that's, that's, I, don't, I don't know what's all involved with that, but that's incredible. But anyway, the man was a preaching machine. People would get saved. There would be conversions. And, and it would go all throughout the places where he'd go. I mean, he had a big deal down uh, in Georgia and all the way up the eastern seaboard. Uh, George Whitfield, he would be considered the preacher of the first great awakening. Jonathan Edwards would be considered the theologian. But John Wesley would be considered the organizer of the first great awakening. Wesley himself was a preaching machine as well, like Whitfield, although he did not have the, the presence that Whitfield had. But Wesley could organize things. He would organize people into societies. He would, he would organize these preachers that would go out on horseback. And, and he would, you know, was a master organizer. And, and he has a lot of good quotes. Here's you know, one of the quotes that's attributed to John Wesley. He said, quote, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you can. So that's, that's John Wesley. Now, Wesley was used greatly uh, during this time. Uh, there were a lot of reforms that he would make. As a matter of fact, if... Of course, Wesley's were also from England, and they'd go back and forth. He'd spend the bulk of his time back over in England eventually. But it is said that because of the ministry of John Wesley in England, that 
England did not experience a revolution like what happened in France. You know, the French Revolution with people getting their heads cut off, the reign of terror, all that kind of stuff. Well, that didn't happen in England. And many said because of the reforms that were spearheaded by John Wesley that ministered to the poor, organized people. He even taught the people, you know, the lower class people, he taught them how to save their money, how to spend their money. He taught them some really good practical stuff. He, and he ministered to people, to the less fortunate, to people who were in need. And, and so there was not that uprising in England like there was in France. And many say that it was a result of the ministry and the organizing of John Wesley. And let me just say this. Anytime there's a movement of God, you're going to have detractors. Of course, you had people that would say, hey, you know, we don't go along with that because... It was different. What was happening in First Great Awakening, it was different from the high church stuff that was sent over from England. Uh, it let people know that, hey, I'm an individual. And also this walk with Christ is an ex experiential thing. I mean, I experienced that. It's personal. And they really felt like as, that as an individual that they could know God's will, that they could know God. And it, it really also helped foster the American spirit, so to speak. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a few seconds. But Going back to the theologian of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he wrote uh, a work called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God in 1741. And here's how Richard Lovelace, in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, here, here's how he summarizes what Jonathan Edwards said in that work. He said, he defended the revival because it possessed five marks of genuineness. First, it exalted Jesus Christ, attacked the kingdom of darkness, honored the scriptures, promoted sound doctrine, and involved an outpouring of love toward God and man. So, you know, you had your detractors. Of course, the theologian of the first Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards was the one to address that. Wesley was the one to get things organized, and Whitfield was the spokesman. He was the, the big, you know, the preacher. Uh, anyway, so... The First Great Awakening, it happened. And, and one of the things that you cannot underestimate is the role that the First Great Awakening played in the American Revolution. Matter of fact, it kind of set the tone uh, for the American Revolution. I like, uh, there's, a, there's a writer, and here's what he says, quote, Revivals did contribute to the coming revolution in important ideological, sociological, and religious ways. The re revivals shattered the social order of church hierarchy, rejecting the existing power structures of the day and focusing instead on the individual. People who had normally had their voices marginalized or silenced were suddenly able to speak freely about God's grace in their life. So here you have with the First Great Awakening, you have this incredible religious fervor sweeping the colonies. You have people realizing, hey, this walk with God, it is a personal walk. I can know God. And so a lot of the way things were done over in England were not going to be done in the same way over uh, in the colonies like they were done across the Atlantic. And in addition to what was going on with the Great Awakening, with people embracing salvation through Christ and their lives being transformed, changed, you also had those who were just secular and given into the age of reason. They also were all about the individual. And you have people like Thomas Jefferson, some would say also Ben Franklin. 
And, and so you have what some would say you had the, the, some of the sons of liberty, the, the age of reason meeting up with those who have been uh, converted to Christ during the Great Awakening. And it was kind of a, a convergence that happened at that time that set the stage for the American Revolutionary War. One writer would say you, would, you had the German Pietism, the Puritan Calvinism, and the Wesleyan Arminianism coming together for this sweeping of the Great Awakening in the context of the Age of Reason. And, and it's just an con incredible convergence of events. And, you know, as a Christian, I have to say, you know, hey, I think God was in the middle of all that. <laughs> Obviously, I do. And, and I think the events were happening in such a way that America was going to become a nation. Uh, America was going to have a, a solid underpinning for how they were going to establish themselves as a nation. So the Great Awakening led, you know, was one of the factors that was happening in the colonies that would lead to the, the Revolutionary War. And also, so it would, it would set the stage for revolution in America. And if you look in England, like we said, with the, with the ministry of John Wesley, that the awakening that happened over in England would keep them from revolution. It would keep them from revolution like what would be experienced in France in 1789, Bastille and all that stuff, and in the reign of terror and the chopping off of heads. So this great awakening was a shaping event of Western civilization and more specifically of the American way of life. Now I want to talk about the second Great Awakening. I want us to see how, you know, I want to just be able to communicate how the, the way that God moved in the life of the people in America, how so much came out of a devotion to God, a belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second Great Awakening, of course, we got our independence, got the Constitution, we became a nation. Uh, just some hard work had to take place in order to, to get everything in place. It's, it's one thing to, to fight a revolution. It's another thing to be able to govern. And that was kind of a tumultuous time as well. But the second Great Awakening happened roughly between the years 1790 to 1840. So that would be the time of the second Great Awakening. Now, one writer would actually put the Second Great Awakening in three phases, and you can kind of see how this progresses. The first phase being roughly 1795 to 1810, and that's when you had all the, the, the camp meetings out on the frontier. People such as James McGreedy and John McGee, Barton Stone in Kentucky and Tennessee, there were these camp meetings, they, they were wild. There's a lot of just uh, really emotional things that happened out there, and you can read some of that. Go read some of the history of, the, uh, of those camp meetings that happened out on the frontier. Some would say that the second uh, part of the Great Awakening would be 1810 to 1825. And of course, this writer says it centers on the Congregational Churches of New England. You had theologians like Timothy Dwight and Lyman Beecher. And then the third and final phase would be 1825 to 1835. And that would uh, involve the activities of Charles Grandison Finney. So that's what this writer uh, that I'm looking at right now talks about. 
So, you know, you can see how the Second Great Awakening starts out on the frontier. And it was a time where, man, if you read what was going on in the frontier life during that time, it's pretty wild. Uh, it was very lawless. Uh, they needed some reform. They, they needed Christ. They, they needed Jesus in their life because they were not doing good things out there. And so these, these evangelists would get, go out there and they'd have these open-air meetings and people were getting converted and getting converted getting converted. And, and some pretty emotional things were happening out there as well. Then it would go and center around uh, what was going on at Yale. And, and then it would center around later the ministry of Charles Finney. And during this time, also the groups that really grew a lot were the Methodist and the Baptist. Uh, that's when they really started experiencing a lot of growth. And, and so the Methodists and the Baptists started uh, growing by leaps and bounds. You know, their numbers increased uh, in a very significant fashion. You, and you, you had these people to go out on horseback and they, they'd go, they'd ride the circuits and, and they would preach and, and people would embrace the gospel of Christ. But here's the thing about the Second Great Awakening. It led to a lot of social reform. It led to a lot of social change because people started realizing that, you know, we need to, we need to help others. There's a lot of ills in society. So one of the things that came out of the Second Great Awakening is the abolition movement. The abolitionists, they, they, were, they were inspired by the Second Great Awakening. They were believers in Christ. They realized, hey, this slavery isn't right. Something needs to be done. So you had all these abolitionist societies that would start forming, and, and especially, you know, obviously in the North, uh, and it was a good thing. And, and they would form, and you'd have these abolitionists that were motivated because they were believers and so it had its origins in the Second Great Awakening. And you also had the temperance movement. Now, during that time, you know, you had some bad water in some places and liquor was pretty cheap. And you had a lot of alcoholism. And alcoholism would have an incredibly terrible effect upon the family, especially, you know, the women didn't really work outside the home that much back then. And so here's the guy, he's the breadwinner, and, and he's spending all his money on booze and the women, the children are suffering and it was just leading to a, a degradation of society. And it could all trace itself back to all the alcoholism. These people were just really into alcohol and there's a lot of drunkenness. And so you had all these temperance movements that started up and, and what they wanted to do at first is just get people to stop drinking so much, they, you know, temperance, you know, to be temperate, to, to be level-headed about it. But, you know, it got to a point where it's like, you know what, we're going to go all out. We're going to be abolitionist. And so, not abolitionist, I'm sorry, they were going to have the temperance movement and they were going to go for the abolition of alcohol. And so you had the temperance movements and, and I'm going to talk about a little bit more of that in just a second. So you had the abolitionists for slavery, you had the temperance for alcohol, and also another development happened with all this movement. It was a lot of the women that were involved in the abolitionist movement and uh, in the temperance movement. And they started realizing, you know, we have more political power than what we think, but yet we can't vote. And so the women's suffrage movement was also born out of, sec out of the Second Great Awakening. So I, I want you to think about that. Here's America going through this incredible time of change during the late 1700s through almost mid-century of the, of the 1800s. 
this incredible change. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the population just exploded during that time. It went from 5 million to 30 million. The population of the United States from 1800 to 1850 went from basically 5 million to 30 million. And you had this, this westward expansion. And caught up in all this great awakening, all this happening, is that there was this manifest destiny that was being talked about that you know, God wanted the, European, you know, the settlers of European descent to expand all the way across the North American continent. And so all this expansion started happening, and on the frontiers, there's all this wildness. And so evangelists started going out there, and people started getting converted. And then there's some ills of society that needed to be addressed. There was slavery. Uh, there was alcoholism. And all these women got involved with this, these movements, and they realized, hey, we, we need to be more active. We need to have more of a voice. And like I said, that it would eventually uh, lead to the uh, women's suffrage. So you had all these reforms of society. Also, there was penal, uh, penal reforms. They, they were trying to reform the way prisoners were, were treated. Also, there would be worker stuff going on and, and children's stuff. And, and so they realized we want, to, we want to change society. We want to help society. And that was all born out of the Second Great Awakening. I mean, think about it. We even had three amendments to the Constitution that would result. We had the, uh, the end of slavery, abolition of slavery, that amendment. We had uh, women's suffrage, and we had prohibition. These were amendments that were added to the Constitution. Of course, the prohibition uh, amendment was overturned a little bit over a decade after it was passed. But there were there was societal change that took place uh, because of the Second Great Awakening. And I, I think that's one of the things, kind of what I want to get to now. I, I know that we had the prayer movement in the 18, late 1850s and the 1904, 1905 uh, Welch Revival that affected America, and then Azusa Street, and then you had Billy Graham in the 50s, and then you had the Jesus Movement in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. And so there's been, a, there's been this movement of God in the United States of America. And what has happened is that, that when, when there's a movement of God, there is a conversion. The, the person's converted, born again, saved. Uh, something different happens in that person's life that has eternal significance. If, you've never been, if you're not saved, you don't know what I'm talking about. You've never experienced it. But if you are saved, you know what I'm talking about. And your sins are forgiven. God sends His Holy Spirit to live within, within you. You have now been called to be an ambassador for Christ. You've now been called to be salt and light. It means a, a difference maker. Just like salt and light makes a difference in whatever environment that they are introduced, you're to make a difference. And we see, especially after the second great awakening, that these people took it seriously. Hey, we need to make a difference in society. And I think that as God moves in our nation, and we need to be praying, we need to be, we need to be praying that that the Spirit of God moves in the life of the United States of America. The church needs to be about transforming society. We, we have been called to be salt and light. Now, we know that, you know, this world will not end well. We do know that. We know that there's going to be, a, many believe, a rapture. There's going to be the Battle of Armageddon. There's going to be judgment, all that kind of stuff. But while we're here, we are to seek to have a transformative effect upon our culture. We just are. We're ambassadors for Christ. We're, we're salt and light. And 
when there is a great movement of God, an awakening, a revival, uh, you know, Christians' hearts are, are, are stirred. When there's an, an awakening, those who are, are without Christ, they receive Christ, they, they become saved, they, they, they are converted. And stuff should happen, good stuff should result from that. I like what uh, Richard Lovelace in his book talks about revival. And he, he talks about J. Edwin Orr, a man who really studied the whole concept of revival and what all that meant, the implications. And here's what he says about Orr's concept. Quote, Orr's concept of, re of religious revival focuses sharply on the phenomena described in Acts 1 and 2. Corporate prayer of dependence on the Holy Spirit followed by the spiritual re-energizing of the church and the empowering of preaching and teaching ministries, reaching out in evangelism and healing social ministry, leading to the conversion of large numbers both within and outside the church. So there's this prayer, and then there's this, this dependence upon God, and, and God working in the lives of believers and through their lives, and, and they're being change that takes place. Good, good change. Change that blesses a society. You know, one of the things I, I think about now is I think, you know, how Christians are seeking to make a change in society uh, in addition to preaching the gospel urging people to repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ. Of course, you have so many ministries like Samaritan's Purse that goes all over the world and even in our own nation, seeking to meet practical needs. Uh, you have the disaster relief uh, arm of the Southern Baptist Convention that, man, when there's a natural disaster, they're there. They're helping people. They're helping people uh, get trees off their houses. They're feeding people, giving people um, clothes that they needed. And you have, speaking of clothes, you have, Churches all over have clothes closet, food closets. Um, I know at the church where I'm a pastor, we help a ministry over in the Philippines uh, that seeks to get women off the streets, women who've been uh, unfortunately involved in prostitution, and they help them get uh, safety. It's called Safe Refuge. They get safety from uh, the, the pimps and others that seek to uh, harm them and uh, ruin their lives. And, and you know, we right now are collecting Christmas gifts for those ladies on the other side of the world, we also take up money for the Crisis Pregnancy Center or, or, or the Pregnancy Resource Center, I think that's what they want to be called, uh, to help ladies who are contemplating abortion, to help them not only not get an abortion, but to provide certain needs for them once they have their babies. So the church is, you know, we want to make a difference in this world. First and foremost, this life will end and the life to come is a lot more important than the life that we're living right now because the life to come is eternal. So we want to have a message that says, hey, hey, there is forgiveness for your sin. You've got an incredible problem. It's called a sin problem. If it's not dealt with, you pay for your sins for all of eternity. You don't go to heaven. But the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross on your behalf. Your sins were placed upon Him. And with your sin upon Him, He died. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. He paid that debt on your behalf. And the good news is, that's what the gospel means, good news, is that your sins can be forgiven. You can be assured of eternity in a place called heaven. And not only that, you can have the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life right now, and you can have purpose in life uh, better than what you could ever imagine because you'll be living from the inside out, regardless of your outward circumstances. And it's a, it is, the gospel is great, great news. And so, you know, we want to have the, that message of the gospel 
but also we want to seek to meet needs. And we're not going to be about the social gospel that meets needs without the message of salvation. We want to have the message of salvation and we want to meet practical needs. And I think what you see with the second great awakening is that there's a lot of good stuff that came out of that. That there was a lot of transformation of society that happened because people were changed and they wanted to make a change. So here's what I want to challenge you today. If you've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we see how God's worked in our nation in the past, if you've been changed, I want you to, to be committed to make a change. To make a change for the good. To make a change that meets practical needs. To help people where they are. To, to give a cup, even a cup of water in the name of Jesus. See, God, I believe God's worked in our nation in the past. I believe God's working in our nation right now. And I believe we're at a we're at a pretty big crisis point in our nation. And I want to challenge you as well to be praying. Pray on behalf of our nation. Pray for the peace of our nation. Pray that souls are converted, that needs are met in the name of Jesus. And pray for God to do something good in our nation that's exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. Hey, God's worked in the past. He's working now and he'll work in the future. Let's just, let's just get involved with him and be a part of the solution in the name of Jesus. I want to thank you for being a part of the Marty McLean podcast today. I hope you have a great week. And remember, pray for our nation. Seek to make, make a change in the name of Jesus. See you next week on the Marty McLean podcast.